let's turn in our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're in this series, um, going through this really crazy, cool, challenging book uh, of philosophy, um, thinking about what is the meaning of life, right? This is something our culture is asking. Does it feel really relevant to you? It's such a, like These are the questions our culture is asking, and, and we get to study these words written by God like 3,000 years ago, and, and what an amazing thing. Now, today I'm going to teach out of the New Living Translation, and I'm going to do that because I read it over and over again out of the English Standard Version, and it was so complicated. I would spend all my time saying, okay, this is what that said. And so this is easier for me. If you have the NLT, you're, this is your day. Uh, if you don't, you can find it on the phone. I had them posted in the, in the, um, on the U version in the NLT today. But I'm going to read that um, uh, out of this text this morning. And I'm just going to ask uh, God's blessing as we study his word now. So, Father, we're, we're really grateful that you have left us your word. God, you, you come to us and you will not be silent. You speak. In fact, you spoke and the world just was created. And now you speak to us and every individual and every heart in this room. You care about us so much, God. And so help us to hear, God. Let us have ears to hear, God, uh, to what you have to say to us today. We pray this by your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to I do this in three parts here this morning. First of all, um, we'll see in verses 1 to 7, um, that coming to church is serious business. Like, this is the serious thing we're doing here today. I, I know this won't come as a surprise to you, but I want us to look at this. This is a, an important text. And, and then the, the message that we teach here, and we'll teach over and again. First of all, we do not put our hope in the world, but we put our hope in God. Those will be the final two points. So let's look at this, okay? Coming to church is serious business. Look at this. Verse 1. As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. <laughs> Except for the preacher. I got to say something. So this is telling us to be engaged, right? To be engaged as people. That we come together, and it's serious business. Don't come with mindless offerings. It is evil to make mindless offerings. Don't just go through religious motions. Don't just check the box. I went to church today. This is a time to meet with God. He is here, and he comes, and he will not be silent. It says in Psalm 53, he is here to say something to you this morning. And will we come with ears uh, to hear? It's serious business. Isaiah 66, 2 says we're to tremble at his word. It speaks the very voice of God talking to us this morning as we read these words. So, so let's be people who have hearts to, to hear from God, to take this seriously as we come. This is the, the one hour of the week where we're coming together together to hear what God might say to us as a group of people. And there's a number of things that I've done over the years that, that have helped me. You know, Pastor Kevin, this might surprise you. I probably ought to be fired for this. But, but, but Pastor Kevin doesn't always feel like coming to church. You know that? But you know, I keep coming. Part of it's because you pay me to come. I mean, I have to be here. But, but I've come to church even when it wasn't my profession, regularly, weekly, because I want to hear the voice of God. And so here's some things I've done. Like Saturday night, get to bed. Get some sleep. 
Read the text beforehand. Read Ecclesiastes 5 and, and 6. Come prepared to hear the, the voice of God. Have a pencil in your hand. If you look at the text of my Bible, I just constantly, when I see things, just, just highlight it. Take notes. Use a pencil to hear the voice of God. Listen to the Spirit. Pray and ask God to speak to you in your heart. Ask him to show you what you need to hear from him today. Discuss with your family and friends what you have heard when you are home this afternoon. Let, let God's word sink in to you. Right? Keep your ears open. Listen to the words of God. Then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, Don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are here on earth. So let your words be few. In other words, when you speak, speak to God with reverence. Honor him as God, and he is the one that created you. I think of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 where it begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Come with a heart of worship to hear from him. Come with a posture of worship. Sometimes just bow before him. This is why we kneel when we pray because he is our Father who in heaven and he is hallowed. But it says be careful to make promises to God. Verse 4, when you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. It is better to say nothing than to make a promise and not keep it. So be careful in the promises you make to God here uh, today. Keep your word when you say it. Do what you say you will do. Follow through on what you say you will do. Let's be people of our word, and especially when we deal with God. We tell God we will do something, let's follow through. And it says in verse 3 that too many words make you uh, a fool. So don't be quick to speak. Be slow to speak and quick to, to hear. Matthew chapter 6 says this, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Verse 7 says that talk is cheap. Words and talk can just be meaningless unless you follow through. And so the Bible warns us, don't just hear God's word, but be doers. Let's be known for our actions and the things we do, that we follow the things that we say we're going to do, and we follow what God tells us to do. We're people of our word. I mean, this is one of the criticisms of Christians is they say one thing and they can blabber on about all kinds of information, but do they actually live what they say they will do? On the refrigerator of my kid's home in Oregon, it says this little line. It says, after all was said and done, there was more said than done. Right? <laughs> Let's be people of our, of our word, people of action that are doers of, of the word. And I want you to notice verse 6. This is an interesting verse. It says, don't let your mouth make you sin. We just talked about that. 
And don't defend yourself by telling the temple messenger that the promise you made was a mistake. That would make God angry and he might wipe out everything you have achieved. So here's these people and they've told a church leader their good intentions to follow God in any particular way. But they didn't keep them. They didn't follow through. God wants us to keep our word. And notice that these commitments were made to those in the church family, to those in the community. God has designed us to live in community. That we're to walk with him as people of faith, together encouraging one another, sharing with those around us what we intend to do so that they can hold us accountable. This is a good thing. It's what we're intended to, to be as God's people, to be honest with each other, to confess our sins to each other, it says in James 5 17. And so all of us need to find that safe place within the church family where we're honest and real and speak of our struggles and our challenges and the things that we are going through, a place of love and grace where we can find healing and growth as God's people. This, this protects us. Right? When we don't do this, we often say that sin grows in the dark. If you don't have somebody that you're sharing your life with and the things you're going with, and you keep it just to yourself, those sins grow bigger and bigger until you finally bring someone else in and confess it. It's amazing the healing and the grace and the breaks that are put on our lives where we're just honest about what we are going through. And Hebrews 10.24 says that we should not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, but we should come together and we should encourage one another. And that's the purpose of doing life and sharing the things that we are challenged with. And all of us are going through things uh, today. You can do this with your spouse. You can do this with a friend. You can do this with colleagues. Um, our staff does this once a month. Um, we gather and just share uh, a list of things that we ask of each other, how we are doing. And it, and it protects us. Our staff deeply values this accountability, and we all need this, right? Um, about a week ago, I was driving with Aaron Jed, our youngest intern, and uh, we were heading off to get coffee together, and Pastor Kevin got pulled over by a policeman. <laughs> this was a bad day. Aaron thought it was awesome, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was laughing most of the time. I didn't think it was quite so funny. But look it, it reminded me, like, I'm accountable to Aaron. I'm accountable to him. He's the youngest guy on the staff team. I'm the oldest, but I'm accountable to him for my life. And he to me. And we to each other, as a congregation, we are accountable to each other. And so the Bible tells us when we set out to follow God and we say we're going to follow God, and we see this too with baptisms of people, when they say they're going to follow God, we're in this together. We're fighting for each other. We're standing with each other. We're holding each other accountable in love and grace and mercy to be the people God is calling us to be. And if we don't do it, we won't make it. We were never meant to do this alone. And so we're to fear God, it says, but we're to fear him together. We all stand on a level place together, Aaron and me and all of you, before God to do our very best to be what he wants us to be. 
So coming to church is serious business. But second of all now, let's look at this. Don't put your hope in the world. And there's two ways we're told not to put our hope in the world here in this text. Look at this. First of all, it says, don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy and even the king milks the land for his own profit. Oh my gosh. Now that's a discouraging set of verses, right? But it tells us, don't put your hope in government. They're corrupt. That's what, it, right? You all surprised by that? <laughs> don't put your hope in government. Now look it. I am so thankful for our government here in Salt Lake, in our state. Have you seen recently where we're ranked in U.S. News and World Report and the states to live in? What are we? We are the number one best state to live in in the whole country. I am thankful for a government that guides us in some really good ways. And have you noticed this? This came out this last week. The number one city for recovery post-pandemic for downtown activity and commerce. Number one city in America. What is it, people? Salt Lake City. We are number one. We're at 140% of what we were pre-pandemic downtown. San Francisco, 32%. Portland, Oregon, where my kids live, 40%. Salt Lake City, 140%. We are blessed, and we have good people governing our state and cities. But don't think for a second that there isn't a whole lot of real corruption in the middle of all that. <laughs> right? You know that's true. So don't put your hope in government. It will always be corrupt all the way to the top. It says even the king milks the land for his own profit. The number one guy milking the land for his own benefit. We see this all the time. And I think this is the reason why we have democracy in part, right? And while Christians were involved in the early days, many not, most not in fact, but some were Christians, that they knew the biblical teaching that the heart of man is desperately wicked. And so we need balances between powers and places of government. And look at just because government is corrupt doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved, right? Young people, I hope a bunch of you do law. Do politics. We need Christians in government. This is a, a good thing to give your life to if God is calling you to do that. But beyond that, here's what we all can do. 1 Timothy 2.2, we are told to pray for our leaders. Pray for those people that are over us. Pray for those people in government that they might honor God and do things that are honorable, okay? Just because government is corrupt does not mean we have an excuse of not participating in praying. Now, Pastor Jared challenged us last week <clears throat> that we are to attend to the needs of people who are alone and suffering and in pain, widows and orphans and those disenfranchised. And... This text, verses 8 to 9, says that don't count on government to do that well. They're in it for themselves. Government does help, and they do some things. But it says it's filled with 
Red tape and bureaucracy, what they do, right? And so what is best done is when each of us as individual citizens, and particularly as Christian citizens, is we look for every opportunity to care for and serve those that are underprivileged, underserved, forgotten, in need in our, our culture. And, and so let's, let, let's build on, right, some of the things that Pastor Jared said last week. Let's look every day, all of us, thousands of things that we can do. I was alert this week. I hope you took the sermon and went home with it and thought about it and said, okay, how can I serve this week in my community? I found two different things I would not have done this week if I had not heard the words I heard last week. So what it means to hear God's word and be doers of it. Like where, where do we make a difference? How can we serve, right? I am so thankful for the many of us that are, are serving in so many ways. Dennis Crenshaw, who has the ministry to the homeless. I am thankful for Kirk and Crystal. Where are you, Kirk and Crystal? Where'd you go? They're back there. They are going to bring economic prosperity to East Africa and serving and some cool business opportunities. Ask them about them and how they are developing as Christians in this part of the world, building healthy economic prosperity. I, I am thankful that we are sending 34 to Guatemala. Do you, know, do you know what our initial motivation for going to Guatemala was 10 years ago? To serve those that were in great need. To love and care for people that needed love and care. And so we went in that way and it's become so much more and we are so blessed. In fact, this is what God does with us as we step out in faith and serve and love those around us. He builds it bigger than we ever could. And so we are not to put our hope in government, but to minister to the needs of those around us day by day, each of us as individuals serving the people God puts in our path. So not only not to put our hope in government, we're also not to put it in money, right? This is, this is a very familiar theme with Solomon. He, he comes back to this one often. And uh, he does it again here in verses 10 through 17. He says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. So if you put your hope in money, here's the promise. We know this is true. No matter how much you get, you'll never have enough. You'll never be satisfied. Oh, it'll be a short burst of joy, but it doesn't last. We know this. When money drives us and we go after it, eventually we go, this is meaningless. We're just like, like Solomon. I, I'm watching our city and, and our academic institutions and the athletic departments these days work at this. And you know what they're doing here next year. You've probably seen this. If you're a sports fan, you really know this. But USC and UCLA are leaving the Pac-12. And where are they going? Somewhere out in the Midwest out there. And in, in the East Coast. Like, does this make any sense at all to anybody? And why are they doing it? For the money. For the money. Are we going to be happier? Nobody's going to like this. The athletes aren't going to like it. They've got to travel 2,000 miles to their next game. And all the traditions and all the joy of the rivalries is like gone for a few more dollars. Right? This is the problem. We chase money. We do it all the time in our culture. All the joy is taken out. We're not satisfied. And we end up in this really bad place. And so Solomon is trying to warn us again because we know how easily we give in to this. But verse 11, it says, the more you have, 
the more people come to help you spend it, right? If you've won the lottery, you know what happens. You've got a lot of friends suddenly. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. So here's what money does to you. It makes you worry. You got more to manage, you got more to be concerned about, and you got more to protect, and it just adds to your stress. Don't put your hope in it. Furthermore, now, verse 13, there's another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. And this, too, is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. And so here's another reason not to put your hope in money, right? And that is that it all leaves you. It all goes away. And if it hasn't gone away in this life, when you die, the minute you die, it is gone. Everyone ends life the way they started with nothing taken with them. And this is why James chapter 1 says, like, rejoice in the humble position of being poor. You don't have a lot to lose. But the rich man be careful, should boast because of his lowly position, because everything he has, he's going to lose. It all goes off the cliff. <laughs> and then he does this really crazy thing in chapter 6, verse 38. He said, what if you had everything imaginable? What if you had every dream come true? What if everything you wanted, you got? Right? Now, this is a 1,000 B.C. answer to this. First of all, you get 100 children. That sounds like a lot of work to me. So I wouldn't put that on the top of my list. But this, is, this, is, this was in ancient times. The more children you had, the more blessed you were. That's probably true today, too, though we don't think of 100 children as that. But he had 100 children, right? And then it says he had great wealth. And then it says he lived 1,000 years twice over. Long life filled with health. Everything he dreamed of, everything he wanted. And then in verse 7 and 8 he goes, it didn't seem to be enough. Always scrambling to try to get a little bit more. And so when we put our hope in money, Christians, American Christians, right? It leads, as it says in verse 17, it leads to frustration and discouragement and anger been frustrated, been discouraged, been angry, because your financial situation, don't put your hope there. It's not our hope. I was actually preparing this verse, this very verse, this is how God treats us. So it's a cool thing. I was working on this verse, sitting on my couch at home, next to my picture window in front of my house, and up comes a squirrel a big nut in his mouth. And he looked really, really happy. Like, you know, I kind of want to start philosophizing like Solomon here. Like, here's this squirrel and he's got this big acorn in his 
mouth. And I thought, you know, these squirrels got a pretty good life. You know, maybe if I were a squirrel, like, right, just get to run around the trees and watch them all morning, you know, and then he's got this thing. And he has got everything he wants in his world. And doggone if another squirrel didn't come away and try to steal that nut from him. Like, that's right, that's Solomon. Solomon, go meaningless. Like, right, all is vanity. Like, even like I got my best acorn and here comes another squirrel that wants it. <laughs> this is life. And so everywhere Solomon looked, happiness and satisfaction were elusive. To the point where he says in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 6, maybe it would have been better if I'd never been born. That's a pretty discouraging place. Right? It's just so meaningless. We try to create wealth and we try to make a difference and it's all lost. And so maybe, just maybe, it would be better if I were never born. Okay, now we're ready for the answer, aren't we? Now we're ready for the answer. To put our hope in God. To turn our eyes upward above the sun, right? Solomon is always talking about under the sun. What's it like here on earth? And then he calls us upward. And look at verses 18 to 20 now of chapter 5. <clears throat> Even so, I have noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat and drink and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life that God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and to receive good health to enjoy it and to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This indeed is a gift of God. And God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. And so once again now, Solomon begins to look above the sun and to call us back to a life lived with and for God that can be enjoyed. And in fact, he even says enjoy it. Like enjoy it. And, and I want to say this, like, because I think our culture asks this question, why bring children into the world? Why do this? Right? My, my next door neighbor who's not a believer, he says, I don't, they're well in their 30s now. They go, I don't even know if we want to have children. I don't know if I want to bring children into this world. That's tragedy. And here is as good a reason as any is you give a little human a chance to walk with God and enjoy God and worship God and serve God all their life. And that's worth taking a risk for. Young couples bring children into the world to give them a chance to walk with our good God. So he says to us now, Enjoy what God has given you. And we're reminded, James 1.17, that every good gift that we have, everything good that comes our way, every blessing in life comes from the good hand of God, James 1.17. And he tells us in chapter 6 of our text this morning, uh, verse 9, he says, Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Enjoy what God has given you. He is in control of that. He knows what is best for you. 
Now, as I think about this text, I feel like, Solomon, you're kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth here a bit to me. This is what it feels like. He goes, at one level, like the things of earth aren't going to satisfy. They just make you miserable because you lose them. And like, right, he gets in this very under the sun dynamic. And then the other hand, he, now he turns around and says, enjoy the things of earth. Like, like, what do we do with this contradiction? You feel it? I feel the tension of this all the time as I read this. It's going to make you miserable having wealth. It's not, it's not going to satisfy. But now, enjoy it. <laughs> what? So let me say this. I think this is really important. The pleasures of earth are not an end in themselves. They're short-lived and they're fleeting. This world and its pleasures are not an end. God and his purposes are. Okay? God puts in us these desires, and then the ensuing frustrations that go with them, that we all feel. They're given by God, and they're given by him to turn our heart toward him, to go on a search like Solomon is. Solomon is going on a search for meaning, and it's turning him again and again that, God, you have to be the answer. I can't figure this out without you. These longings and these desires of earth point us to him, to something way better. Uh, the, the Westminster Catechism famously says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why we are made. Until you bring God into the picture, you don't see the purpose in this. I, I read a book 30 years ago now changed my life forever, called Desiring God by John Piper. It's a famous book. Many of you have probably read it. But he says, I want to I tweak this Westminster Catechism just a little bit. And he says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In other words, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This changes the whole thing. That my pursuit of pleasure is also a pursuit of the glory of God when I turn it toward him. That changed my life 30 years ago. When this search for satisfaction gets turned toward God, that we enjoy him, our lives are changed. And so we are now encouraged not only to enjoy the things of earth, but then to turn them Godward and say, God, thank you, and praise him and worship him for the good gifts. This is why Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice. Because everything enjoyed on earth should turn into a thank you or a praise to God. Enjoy the blessings of earth. And then heighten those pleasures to bring glory and praise to him by saying, thank you. Praise you for being so good to me. And sharing those blessings with others to bless others. It takes the goodness of earth and turns it to him and his glory, to his praise. So think about this. In God, I have someone to thank. What if you didn't have someone to thank? Like there's more joy. I mean, this is a blessed thing to say thank you to God. Like there's always extra joy in this. In God, we have someone to praise. We were made to appreciate beauty and made to appreciate accomplishment. I and mean, we're going to celebrate a bunch of graduates here in the next, I think next, next Sunday, right? Yeah, next Sunday. 
And we look at them and we go, way to go. But that's the glory of God in them. That God has wired them and equipped them and given them a mind and a capacity to do some really cool things. And that's just a greater joy when we can say, God, thank you for being so good to, to them. And to share his blessings with others. Jesus said, and we see it in Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Like all the blessings of earth, when we can give them away, it just magnifies God. And so we are told, and, and even in suffering, right? Because sometimes life is really, really hard. To see that, that God is teaching us to walk with him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. He's with us. And so he wraps up this chapter 5 with this crazy little verse. Look at this. God keeps such people, people that put their eyes on him, God keeps such people so busy enjoying life, listen to this, that they take no time to brood over the past. <laughs> what in the world, right? Ever get hung up in your past? Ever get stuck? Ever regretting those failed times over and over again? Just getting miserable? This is one of Satan's tricks. To get you locked down in your past, thinking about it over and all your past failings and your past wounds and just be stuck. Now look, this is a time to address our past, looking for restoration and healing and, and help and, and forgiveness, right? But it's always for the purpose of redemption, to move us forward. And, and Apostle Paul says, I forget what is in the past and look forward to what lies behind. We are to find God's healing and of our brokenness in the past and then move forward in faith, trusting him, walking with him day by day. I was reading a little article from a 102-year-old woman this past week. Did, did you see this? Her name's Gladys McGarry. 102-year-old woman who's been a medical doctor all her life. I think she's still working, actually. Like, this is crazy. Right? Retire. Like, take it easy. But no, like, she's going after it. And, and she goes, here's my one key. One key to living a healthy and happy life. Things that have hold you, held you down from your past and things that you tend to ruminate over and over and over again of your failings, take them and throw them behind you. <laughs> And she goes, I even go through this thing. Francis is a 102-year-old lady doing this. She goes, I reach up, and I grab that junk, and I take it, and I throw it behind me. <laughs> I love this. I'd love to see her do it. So let's, let's, let's put our eyes on God, what he's doing with us, and what he has for us to do here in the future. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. Psalm 43, 5. And so we'll close here now. <clears throat> Verses 10 to 12 of chapter 6. Here is our amazing and good God. <clears throat> Everything has already been decided it was known long ago what each person would be, so there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. The more words you speak, the less they mean, so what good are they? So first of all, what's true about our God? 
<laughs> he's sovereign. He's in control. He does whatever he pleases. That's good news for us. That frees us up. We don't have to be in control of everything. There is a God who's in control. We don't have to manipulate our situations to get our way. We don't have to use way too many words to try to get things where we want it. Don't try to be more than you are. Don't try to control more than you are. In fact, you're told to control one thing, and that's you. (laughs) Self-control, right? Trust God with the rest. Second of all, Look at this, chapter 12a. In the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can best be spent? People, who knows how our days can best be spent? God, right, God. You don't have to know things. You don't have to understand everything. In fact, most things you and I, we don't know. Life can be so confusing and so complicated. Band, you can come on up. He's so confusing and so complicated that he wants to help you because he knows everything. He knows everything about everybody. He wants to help you. He cares more about your struggles than, than you do. James 1.5 says, anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. He's the all-wise God. And finally, look at this about our God, 12b. Who can tell what will happen on this earth after we are gone? Who can? Who can tell what's going to happen in the future after we're gone? The answer is God, right? He is an eternal God. You don't need to know the future. God does. And he's good. He's for you. It's scary, it's uncertain, it's filled with troubles and pains, no doubt, lots of challenges that we don't even want to see. But if we put our future in his hands, we can trust him. Because he knows it. He's eternal. He's sovereign, he's wise, he's eternal, and he will walk with you all the way through it. And he came to, to show us what this would look like in the person of his son, who, being God in the human flesh, was the perfect image of who God really is. All wise, sovereign, creator God, eternal God. And so if you want to secure your future, the Bible says put your hope in Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in the one who God the Father sent to die for your sins so that you can be forgiven and set free and live a life filled with the Spirit in honor to him. The Bible tells us in Romans 10.9 that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So the question then is, what are you going to do with Jesus? That God, who is sovereign and wise and eternal and loving, wants to walk with you. The Bible says he stands at the door and he knocks. He wants in, right? Do you want to have a God that's got the 
things in control, that gives you wisdom, that gives you a certain eternity? Do you want that? He stands at the door and he knocks to get in. And he's never going to force his way in. But he says, open the door and let me come into your life. So will you do that this morning? Or maybe you're the person who you've let him in, but you keep one really, really messy room. Right? You ever done that? We do this when company comes over. We jam everything in one room. All the junk. Maybe you've got a room like that in your life. You've let Jesus into every part of the house, but you haven't let him in that one room. And he's knocking. You gonna let me have that room? He knows what he's doing, right? He knows the future. He's wise. He knows how to help you with that. Will you give that room to him this morning? That's the invitation. Put your hope in God, not in the things of this world. Let's pray. So I know, Father, that um, in this room we have all kinds of experiences and circumstances and things that we're wrestling with today. And yet you are our only hope, God. You are our only hope. If we put it in anywhere on this earth, it'll leave us frustrated and angry and disappointed. Let us turn our hearts to you, God. Help us now. As we sing, reflect on your greatness and your glory and your goodness and all that you are for us in Jesus to put you at the center. We pray in your name.